0: Hello, and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. My name is Paul Graves, and I'm the managing editor for Dentwine Municipals. Joining me today are my colleagues, Seth Brumby, the deputy editor, our assistant editor, Mary Ellen Tye, and our head of municipal research, Greg Clark. First thing we'll get into today is that yesterday in Chicago, we held a, what we call a municipal credit forum on two topics, which were, one, evaluating Distressed municipalities, and two looking at well, it was called sorry, death of a thousand paper cuts, incremental credit decline in municipal bond borrowers. So basically, these two topics were really about trouble and how do you get into trouble, which would be the death of a thousand paper cuts, and what happens when you are in trouble, and just how difficult it is to turn it around. Which is that whole thing of evaluating distressed municipalities. But first, Greg, maybe you want to talk about your panel because you dealt with the death of a thousand paper cuts. What did you get out of it? The, what were um, the
1: major themes? The overall thesis of this one, Paul, was that for every borrower that's filed bankruptcy or maybe close at the moment, think of Detroit or various entities of Puerto Rico or Hartford. At one time, they were pretty strong credits. Puerto Rico, I mean, none of them were ever AAA, I don't think. Puerto Rico definitely was not. But Puerto Rico had an A from one rating agency for quite a long time. I would say at least a decade, maybe two. So the idea was, what could we have seen when we, looking back at those cases, and more importantly, looking forward, what are, what are the things that will cause borrowers, municipal borrowers to deteriorate over time? The panelists, we had three panelists plus I was serving as moderator. Their consensus was that the biggest challenges are mounting obligations due to pensions, infrastructure, and labor costs, labor being one of the bigger costs that a, that a city has. Of course, a lot of this can be resolved if, regional economic growth is strong. And if ideally, if, if national economic growth is strong too, sometimes they both are, sometimes you only get one because a strong economy can bail issuers out of a lot of problems. The, the, the issue in the last 10 years has been that revenues at the state and local level have not quite fully recovered from their recession lows back then in 2000, 2008, 2009. There was also some good news in that when states try to revise labor agreements, the courts are generally supportive. The important thing, though, is, is not to wait because once you're in bankruptcy court, it's too late. The courts, the bankruptcy courts, have typically favored pensioners over bondholders in just about every case that we've studied. Currently, pensions and post retirement health care benefits account for 8.2% of governmental activities, expenditures. Governmental activities is probably the widest uh, measure of state of a given borrower's expenditures. We're going to take a closer look at that, at that number. That was, that was given by one of our panelists. He, that same panelist also mentioned that 12% of cities have a ratio of 15%. Again, that's 15% of their expenditures go to pension and post-retirement health care costs. That's getting to be pretty high. We're going to be taking a look at that kind of thing as as we proceed. And Seth, do you want to talk a little bit about your panel?
2: Sure. My panel was really about distressed municipalities and the types of indicators that your municipality is in distress, both from the creditor and from the borrower perspective and the various things that you as a bondholder might need to consider if uh, you are either A, trying to assess that risk, or B, maybe even trying to assess an opportunity. My biggest takeaway there was the advent of the statutory lien. And I think, obviously, this has always been in the municipal market, but I think it's becoming a lot more uh, integrated into credit analysis. And the statutory lien is really about making sure that whatever legislation went into creating your debt instrument, that there was a lien as a part of that legislation and that the, 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 the government basically said you will have a lien. And even then, if you can find in your bond documents that you have a statutory lien, there's also whether or not that statutory lien has been perfected and is even strong enough to withstand a court challenge. Certainly, we've seen that uh, in Puerto Rico right now. Uh, but we are taking a look at it in other places, too. So that, to me, that spawnholders are going to start thinking much more heavily about what their security is, I find to be interesting. And I think the other takeaway, too, was that it's not so much that the stigma has worn off for municipal defaults, uh, so much that it is that I think municipalities understand that they get to a certain point where they can't handle their problems. And that they need to think of more drastic measures, such as a restructuring, entering negotiations with bondholders. And bondholders need to be prepared for that, too. I think the way that we structured this was was pretty good in the sense that, you know, it it started with my panel discussing distress. But then in in pivoting to Greg's, it let people know that there's sort of a continuum here and that you shouldn't just start thinking about defaults after your credit gets downgraded to junk you should start thinking about distress when your credit's still A-rated and even double A-rated, knowing that maybe within the next 10, 20 years, something can happen. So that was probably, I I think, uh, the the nice span of the conversation there. Yeah,
1: you you wanna know going in what your secured revenue base is and and how tight it is. Uh, If you don't know that going in and things go south, then that's when you could be in trouble.
2: Yeah, and I, I think too, you know, when you talk about going south and then hitting bottom, there are a lot of indicators along the way that show you what trajectory your municipality is on. And there was a nice uh, discussion on my panel about the difference between, you know, cash insolvency, which is you as a government not being able to pay your bills, including debt service, but also servants level insolvency and you know service level insolvency is from a bondholders perspective it's not a monetary default it's not even a preemptive covenant default it is you know what's the response time for my emergency personnel uh, do i have all my streetlights working am i repairing my roads it, it's that kind of stuff that if you start to notice that your municipality it's not performing its functions and its services to its community that could be a sign that there are other problems ahead
1: i think it's time for your roadkill story
2: <laughs> so all right, I, I, okay, a long time ago when we first started looking at Jefferson County, you know obviously we know that Jefferson County had a problem with its sewer system, but a lot of people forget the fact that Jefferson County had to file for bankruptcy because its general fund lost a significant source of revenue from the state. And when it lost that revenue, it started cutting back on public services, including its own sheriff's department. And one of the first round of cuts to the sheriff's department, the sheriff pretty much turned around and told the county, you know what, I'm going to stop picking up Roadkill. Because I need to only be able to, I need to have the people available to respond to the real emergencies. And that to me is like, okay, wow. So this guy's going to stop actually cleaning up the roads and really just only getting to those life or death type situations. Fast forward to Tuesday, and I was driving with Greg from uh, Milwaukee down to Chicago after visiting some of our subscribers in Wisconsin. And I see on the side of the road uh, roadkill that had been there for a very long time. I mean, we're, we're, we're in New York here at the Muni lowdown. And so I, I, you see frequently see dead deer this time of year. But normally they're off the road within a couple of days. This one had been there longer than a couple of days. And I just thought to myself, what municipality are we in? <laughs> Have they stopped picking up roadkill? And <laughs> send out an alert. Send out an alert. Um, I, I think Milwaukee's probably fine, but it's it's things like that that make you wonder. Okay, so what's going on here? Why isn't the why aren't where are my public services?
0: Yeah, I think the overarching theme that I got as a listener to both the panels is that with one with the thousand paper cuts, it's a accumulation of challenges that are neglected for whatever reason over a period of time, a period of years, and then you have all those challenges that's cumulatively built up that lead you into distress and that are very difficult to turn around. But, I mean, we joke about roadkill, but the reason why it's so important to understand is that it's things like that that people just ignore, it's no big deal, and then there's a next step that's taken, and then the next step. Then the next thing you know, that turns into a 30-minute response time because cumulative hasn't been dealt with. And then that's when people feel it. And to try to turn around a 30-minute response time, big difference in trying to do that and trying to pick up roadkill, to put it simply. <laughs> so, you know, in terms of when you address a problem, that tell, lets you know just how severe it is. But, uh, yeah, it was a great panel. I'm glad we were able to go out there to the Windy City. Uh, it was raining a little bit, but that's okay. We still had a good turnout. So why don't we shift gears a, a bit and? Talk a little bit about the Windy City et al. I guess I'll say the Chicago Credit Complex, Mary Ellen. there have been a few developments this week. Catch us up.
3: Thanks, Paul. To me, the biggest development seemed like the city of Chicago approving a securitization structure. The state earlier this year, as part of the fiscal 18 budget, is allowing home rule municipalities to create special purpose corporations, which will allow them to issue bonds that will be paid for by city revenues collected by the state. Chicago plans on using this to issue about $700 million in bonds at the end of November um, as part of a $3 billion refunding proposal. They're hoping to get higher ratings, which for anyone who's been listening along uh, would be a plus for the city of Chicago. Um, And then also Chicago's public schools are looking to hike property taxes more than anticipated in 2018. They had initially talked around 125 million increase needed, and now it's closer to 225 million. Um, About half of that amount, 154 million, is going for teacher pensions. And then finally, Cook County, which is where Chicago and Chicago, Chicago Public Schools are geographically located is looking to fill a $200 million budget hole for fiscal year 18. So this year after the commission decided to get rid of their soda tax, uh, it will be, the soda tax will only be collected through the end of November.
1: Have we heard any uh, gossip about what types of ratings Chicago expects to get on its new bonds? Because the idea overall is that they'll refinance their old bonds with, with low ratings with the new bonds, which will have a higher rating. I haven't seen anything yet. Of course, the rating agencies wouldn't say anything until they re- announce the actually announce the rating anyway. But I was just curious whether anybody's had any idea.
2: You know, securitization actually came up during uh, the panel that I was on briefly and what was interesting is that uh, one of the panelists had alluded to the fact that maybe having securitization um, makes the stigma of default less likely. And just just to unpack that very quickly, um, you know, if you have a securitization and you know that your bondholders will continue to get paid, um, it makes the consequences of not paying maybe on other bills less severe because your bondholders know that they have a secure stream and your ratings might know that too. And that you know any payment default elsewhere is not does not necessarily translate to a payment default on your bonds.
0: You could you could also and say the thing with uh sorry with uh, securitization is that typically it's a red flag as well of credit trouble.
1: Yeah, basically you're you're saying that the issuer is saying my own credit isn't strong enough that investors will want to buy the bonds at a rate at which I want to sell the bonds. And you, you could say it, it, it could be easier to default on a securitized deal, again, because it's not, it's quote, unquote, not your bonds. It's, just, it's the security structures bonds. And I, I think the controversy there has a long way to go. Again, just looking at Puerto Rico between, with the fight between the GO and the general
2: obligation and the sales tax bondholders And if you look at recent securitizations too, or at least the places that have proposed them, they're not exactly the marquee names in the market. No. I mean, you have Detroit, Atlantic City, now Connecticut, Chicago, Illinois. I mean, these are all very hairy credits.
3: Well, when the CFO of Chicago was talking a couple of weeks ago, she mentioned that like New York, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia all enjoyed upgrades after they did securitizations, and everyone in this room can think of those as, at some point, they were definitely credit-stressed cities.
1: Yeah, I think they'll definitely get... Probably significantly higher ratings on the securitized bonds, I'm talking about Chicago again, than they have on their GOs, but well, I guess in one sense, that's a pretty low hurdle they have to jump.
0: Speaking of GOs and Cofina, and as it relates to Puerto Rico, Mary Ellen, what's the latest there?
3: We had a couple of things happen earlier this week in the GO-Cofina debate. The discussion is between Puerto Rico's general obligation bondholders who, as a general rule, think that they should have access to the Puerto Rico sales and use tax to pay off their bonds versus the COFINA holders, which hold the Puerto Rico sales and use tax-backed bonds, and they believe that they should have first claim on those funds. Yesterday, the two parties issued a statement of facts relevant to their dispute. Basically, this is a statement of Here's when legislation was signed. Here are papers from the Secretary of Justice of the Commonwealth supporting or not supporting the documents. Um, I didn't see any not supporting, actually. But basically it's saying that the spirit that came through was that the Commonwealth isn't really doing any more work to defend Fe- Kofina.
2: Yeah, the, the statement of facts is really just letting the judge know where the points of solidarity are on um, before you get into your dispute. And it really it's just... Things like, okay, here's the legislation that created it. Okay, I agree that that's the legislation. Here's the prospectus that marketed the bonds. Okay, I agree that that's the prospectus. So that the judge has a basis of facts for them to consider as they consider the legal arguments, which of course are always in dispute.
3: And then the other factor was that there's a an agent acting for Kofina in order to sort of resolve this conflict. And there's been a discussion about what level of immunity this particular person should have. Um parties have objected, saying that, you know, only the board that is actually overseeing Puerto Rico's restructuring should have judicial immunity. Um, and this particular agent, Bettina White, is saying that she needs that sort of power in order to properly negotiate at the table between general obligation and COFINA holders to sort of solve this
2: question. It's, it's interesting to see how this has developed. Um, the reason why the agent is important is During the first day hearing for Puerto Rico's Title III, way back in early May, the the alarm for a lot of people was that the Commonwealth, or excuse me, the Oversight Board, wanted to essentially jointly administer two cases. One was the General Obligation case, which is the governmental affairs and operations, and the other one was the Puerto Rico Sales Tax Financing Corporation, which issued the so-called Cofina debt. And a lot of the COFINA bondholders were a little alarmed by that because they felt as though that this was a move towards what's known as substantive consolidation, where you essentially mash together your two restructurings and recoveries for those creditors would come out of the same pool of money. Now, obviously, if you're a sales and use tax bondholder, you think you have a statutory lien on sales and use tax, and you don't want to share that with anybody. So the way that the judge, you know, tried to mollify everybody, and I think for the most part she got it right, was saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to appoint an independent person, the agent, to represent Kofina in this dispute over sales and use tax, and that's who this agent is. And now the agent sees, her name is Bettina White, and now she's, you know, on the precipice of this litigation that's going to decide where the sales and use tax ultimately goes to, and she's saying, I don't want to get sued in case it turns out bad for somebody because it's going to. And, frankly speaking, I think it was National and the Kofina bondholders who said she deserves that immunity so that she can essentially fight for the sales and use tax and fight on Kofina's behalf.
0: All right. Let's keep it moving with a couple of developments in Puerto Rico. One in regards to aid because of the hurricane, Maria, and then the other in regards to the the financial economic, or I should say the fiscal economic growth plan. What's going on in those two areas, Mary Ellen?
3: For Puerto Rico aid, there's a fairly large package that's been introduced in the House of Representatives, about $35 million. However, that does not all go to Puerto Rico. A lot of that a double-digit amount is going to FEMA to reimburse some of the costs they've already spent. Some of that money is going to help fight wildfires. Um, The number that we've been looking at is there's about 5 billion of low interest loans that are being made available to Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands. So both of those places are obviously devastated and are working to rebuild themselves. So we'll see um, how far that 5 billion goes. The governor of Puerto Rico has said that they are going to need more money. To just sort of keep the lights on, Puerto Rico hasn't really been able to collect any taxes since the hurricane hit. Uh, A combination of how do you collect taxes when there's no power and how do you really tax people when their homes are destroyed? Like, I
2: mean, my my general alarm over this is the, the Treasury actually does capture a certain portion of excise tax revenue. I think it was the RUM excise tax that goes to back the Puerto Rico Industrial Financing Authority bonds. And if the Treasury really wants to get paid back, it can just foreclose on that revenue stream, which really stinks for those PRIFA bondholders. There's about a billion of those outstanding. I want to say the Highways and Transportation Authority, there's also a revenue stream for them that sluices through the Treasury that the Treasury could foreclose on if it needed to get paid back too. So you, you have this idea that bondholders are about to get primed by the U.S. Treasury, which is the last person you want to get primed by, as we spoke about last week with regard to GM and Chrysler. When the federal government decides to put some money into a situation, (laughs) yeah, it's oftentimes the the investors uh, that are getting crammed down.
1: They they trump everyone else, no pun intended.
0: Seth, you mentioned PRIFA, just so everyone knows. That stands
2: for... Puerto Rico Infrastructure Financing Authority.
0: And Mary Ellen, in terms of the split between Puerto Rico and the USVI, what's that looking like?
3: I'm not really sure on the um, five billion number there. Roseo issued Ro- Governor Roseo issued a statement today that looked like it was about um, 4.9 billion for Puerto Rico, which would leave about 100 million for the USVI. That just doesn't seem like a lot of money to me, but it is a lot of zeros. I mean, it's certainly more money than I have, but...
1: Well, Puerto Rico's <laughs> got a much smaller population base. I'm not trying to minimize our problems down there, but it's uh, they've got about 100,000 people. Puerto Rico has, what, an excess of 3 million still. Yeah. So
0: You mean the USVI has a much smaller population base?
1: Correct. Yes. If that's not what I said, that's what I meant to say.
0: <laughs> and... Continuing on with the theme of the hurricane, what about the fiscal economic growth plan? And if Marianne, you can give just like a brief background.
3: Yes. So. 15
0: seconds or so on the plan, and then how creditors are feeling about the plan now.
3: Okay. So the plan was, the fiscal economic growth plan is what's basically guiding Puerto Rico's restructuring. Think of it as like a mission statement almost. This is how much money we're going to spend. This is when we're going to spend it. And creditors have been up in arms about this document since it was released, saying that there was nowhere near enough money for them. Um, Average recoveries were less than 30 cents on the dollar. Uh, Now that there's been a hurricane, creditors are saying that, you know, it's premature to look to redo this fiscal economic growth plan that we have been raising a stink about for months. You know maybe the federal aid and insurance claim money will lead to an economic boom
2: yeah in fact they withdrew one of the lawsuits if i recall correctly uh one of the bond insurers on the island and i believe another investor too aurelius had filed a lawsuit challenging the fiscal economic growth plan seeking to somehow get an explanation for why the recoveries were so low and i think following hurricane maria at least one of them withdrew that document and now it seems as though that Twenty to twenty-five cents on the dollar is looking pretty good for these bondholders.
3: Well, but what's interesting with that is the bonds are still trading
2: in the mid-thirties, m-
3: much higher yeah. than that. And admittedly, the the 25, 30 thirty-cent thing we're talking about is an average if all of the bonds. So there are some bonds that might get more than that, which means that your bond is going to get what fifteen cents, ten cents. There's nothing, not very, or there's not very many bonds trading that low. Certainly not
2: enough. Correct. Yeah, only some of the agencies, like the Highways and Transportation Authority, uh, are seeing debt that low. Yeah.
1: Even if they don't do another fiscal and economic growth plan, it's hard to see how the original one is going to have any semblance of reality as they move forward with the with the diminished economic activity they're going to have now. So they they can they can stick with the one they have, but that doesn't mean that it's going to have any kind of link to reality.
0: Yeah, and another interesting component of this will be, given that Puerto Rico hasn't had a hurricane of this intensity in a number of decades, so it's not like a likely thing, do they try to fortify uh, any infrastructure to kind of withstand that? And if they choose to fortify the infrastructure, how much does that raise costs? And just the idea of, I mean, this year we've had three hurricanes, and the hurricane season isn't over until the end of November, Hopefully there won't be another one, but to the extent that this becomes something that could be or that could happen, I should say, if not every year, maybe it's every five years, how will that change the plan as well? So there will be a lot to, to follow in these next few months in terms of how things develop. But why don't we shift gears a little bit, take this to the West Coast um, with a hospital district in Tulare, California. Seth, tells a little bit more.
2: Yeah, so there's a lot of news in the municipal market these days with, you know, Connecticut, Chicago, and Puerto Rico. But every now and then, a story flies into the radar that I always think is pretty compelling. Uh, Tulare Local Healthcare District has about 80 million in debt outstanding. I believe it was issued back in 2010, and not long after that, in 2012, Tulare uh, hired healthcare conglomerate associations to essentially run the facility. And the the game plan for Tulare was always to do an expansion. So to that, and they needed financing, but they never quite got it off the ground. And there was also a lot of infighting between the healthcare district board and um, what I'll call HCCA, which is the Healthcare Conglomerate Associates. What this has led to over the past couple of years is deteriorating results at the hospital. And back in late September, it seemed as though HCCA just stopped paying the healthcare district's employees which prompted an emergency declaration by the healthcare district and then later a Chapter 9 filing uh, right at the end of September. And what's interesting is that normally for first-day filings for any bankruptcy, you see a declaration from a chief executive officer, chief restructuring officer, somebody who can sit there and say, okay, this is what our enterprise is, this is what it does, this is its capital stack, Uh, this is what happened, this is why we filed for bankruptcy, and this is what we want to look like when we come out of it. And what's interesting is that the healthcare district couldn't even provide one of those to the court because they couldn't get HCCA to actually write one and give them relevant information that they needed to actually complete their first day motions. So one of the first things that HCCA, or excuse me, that the healthcare district has done is within the past couple of days, they filed a motion to essentially reject HCCA's contract. You normally don't see the rejection of contracts until a little later in the bankruptcy when you have an idea of what your liabilities and assets are. But the fact that they're making this the first thing for the judge to consider, I find pretty compelling. Remember chapter nine has a pretty high bar of entrance. You need to prove that you are a government instrument. You need to prove that you're insolvent. You need to prove that you engage with your bondholders. So before they, bondholders for restructuring negotiations. So before the healthcare district is even attempting to go through an eligibility trial, they want to reject a contract. And you know, if HCCA wants to be as um, truculent, let's just say, they can just challenge the eligibility of Tulare Healthcare District. And so I, I recommend for all of you chapter nine walks out there to follow this one. This is what happens when your management is not on the same page. What,
1: what else is interesting is if you go to their website, HCCA's website, their uh, mailing address is Telare. And from what I could see, they only manage one other hospital. There's a lot of management companies out there that are much more active. So the, the, uh, on the ground there, it has to be pretty interesting. I'm guessing the local politics are, are pretty rancorous.
0: Well, let's close it out in these last couple of minutes, Greg, and I'm going to file this under, don't call it a comeback. I've been here before. University <laughs> of Scranton, explain to us the current situation over there. U-
1: University of Scranton sold bonds this week, and uh, for for people who may not pay all that much attention to the bond market, universities and nonprofit hospitals can't issue municipal bonds on their own they have to issue through a municipality which is usually something called an authority so the University of Scranton is the borrower in this case they they're responsible for paying back the bonds what was one of the more interesting things with this bond issue is that there have been a series of management changes this is this is a school that's run by the Jesuit uh, religious order, Jesuit priests. From 2003 through 2011, Scott who who is a Jesuit priest, was president. He left to become president of Marquette College in Marquette University in Wisconsin. But after two years, he left there to become president of Georgetown Prep School in Washington, D.C. Which is... He went from... Marquette's pretty big. Yeah, Marquette's uh, Marquette is a marquee school, so to speak, and uh, he went from there to Georgetown Prep, which I'm sure is a good school, but it's a prep school. It doesn't seem like maybe he had planned on easing out of his career. I don't know, but it's an unusual move. Uh, then another president served Scranton, the, the university, from 2011 through May of this year, And then he resigned. And now they have an interim president, a long-term member of the board of trustees at the university until July, 2018, when guess who, Scott Pilarz returns. So it's it's highly unusual for a college or university to have a president back for a second run. We did some research. There wasn't much about all this. Well, the, the changes were in the official statement but there weren't any reasons in there the most official statements just read as if this is a natural course of things we did some internet research unfortunately couldn't find much more uh about the about the management changes or about any controversies surrounding them so but that's the story here um they've got a they've got some management pressures i'm sorry some enrollment pressures there Pennsylvania overall is uh in a somewhat of a, of a demographic decline. I don't want to over, I don't want to uh, exaggerate that, but they've got a, a somewhat smaller pool of college age people than they used to. And uh, it's going to be an interesting school to follow.
0: So, to our listeners, the recurring theme you've heard today is about management and. How successful and qualified management is, and their ability to handle challenges, plays a big role in a credit success. But we ran a little long today, there was a lot to cover. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week here on the Muni Lowdown. Take care.